2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Victoria Bateman to tell us all about her book titled Naked Feminism, Breaking the Cult of Female Modesty, just out in 2023. It's out in the UK and about to be released in the US by Paula E. slash Wiley. Um, This is a really interesting book and I think a really important book that makes the case for women's bodily freedom and explains Why, both currently, historically, in many different places, there is this modesty cult that is really quite obsessed with what a woman is or is not wearing and what this has to do with all sorts of things about her personality, about her actions, about her agency, about really many aspects of a woman's life. Um, so this book, I think, very helpfully helps us understand all these things and how they're woven together and how they're often quite invisible and yet everywhere. So, Victoria,
3: I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us all about your book. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. Before we get into
2: the book, though, I was wondering if you could maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this.
3: Thank you. So I'm Victoria Bateman. I'm a fellow in economics at the University of Cambridge and resident economic historian on the BBC series, uh, Understand the Economy. And for the past 10 years or so, I've been using my body in art and protest, including as a means to reveal and confront the cult of female modesty. And in that sense, my book, Naked Feminism, Breaking the Cult of Female Modesty, is both personal and political. It fuses my academic research with the experience of placing my own naked self in the public sphere. I'd say that it definitely provides a response to all those who've questioned whether being naked can be feminist. And it's a reaction to the numerous times that I've been called trashy, stupid, a whore, along with you know, many other similar, similar words. And you know, having faced the wrath of being judged by society for my lack of bodily coverage, I really wanted to explore when, how, and why societies became so obsessed with women's bodily modesty to explore the many adverse consequences that have resulted from this obsession and to see how it continues to harm women's lives today, even in countries that are considered to be in the grips of raunch culture. And if I can say just two things before before we really get going, and the first one is... Modesty culture is really built on an assumption that men are attracted to women and women are attracted to men. And so, you know, a lot of what I talk about in the book and we'll be talking about, you know, in this program will seem really heteronormative. Now, since I don't support the modesty cult, then it shouldn't surprise you that I also don't support the kind of homophobia and transphobia that almost without exception tends to accompany it. And perhaps if I can say another thing, and that is that my critique of what I call the cult of female modesty, Certainly isn't an objection to anyone who wants to be modest. You know, I, you know, I think people should be free to choose how they dress, how they choose to live their sex life, and so on. You know, it's up to us as individuals to choose what we wear, what we do with our sex life. So my objection isn't really to modesty; it's instead to social attitudes that surround it. So to those who think that women's uncovered or promiscuous bodies are the problem and who in turn deem women they see as immodest as a disruptive force in society very helpful
2: introduction um, of kind of the different aspects of expertise that you bring to this and some of the kind of framing that I think is really key to understand um, the investigation because of course in order to break the cult of female modesty first we have to know what it is and I think that's one of the things that was really important that you make the argument on very clearly at the beginning of the book because it allows for the building that this Cult of bodily bodily modesty isn't just one thing in one place and one time, there's many different iterations and aspects of it. So I was wondering if you could, I mean, obviously the book has all the wonderful detail, but at a uh, bird's eye view, I suppose,
3: take us through some of the facets of bodily modesty. Yeah. So, what I call the cult of female modesty is it's the belief that a woman's worth and respect are conditional on her bodily modesty. And broadly thinking, we could define that as the degree to which a woman's body has been seen or touched. It's the notion that, above everything else, a woman's bodily purity. Is what really matters with women who are seen as insufficiently modest being deemed unrespectable and unworthy. And you know, in some countries, the modesty cult is pretty clear. So, if you look at, for example, Egypt, Morocco, Palestine, more than eight in ten men think that their honor depends on how their female relatives dress and behave in a sexual sense. And in fact, more than a third think that the victims of honor killings usually deserve that punishment. But, you know, in other places like the US and in Europe, the cult of female modesty exists But it's gone under the radar. And that's in large part because modesty culture possesses a secret weapon, and that is that it is really evasive. You know, the line between modesty and immodesty is drawn in a different place, in different time periods, and in different societies. So, what one person judges to be modest someone else might judge to be immodest, depending on where they live and in what century. So in parts of the Middle East, a woman without a headscarf is considered naked. Whereas in Europe, a woman wearing a bikini on a beach wouldn't be considered naked and Monique Mulholland, in her book, Negotiating Pornification, notes that a scantily clad woman can still be considered respectable in Western culture, so long as she behaves in a controlled way in terms of her sexuality. And so, you know, she makes, um, Mulholland makes this distinction between, you know, women who are hot and sexy, and women who are seen as, you know, sluts or whores. And those are, you know, two very different uh, categories. And, you know, within the nudist community, nakedness, you know, full bodily uncovering is perceived as modest rather than immodest. You know, being naked is seen as being humbling, as being innocent, as rejecting material goods, as being without vanity, but at the same time, the sexualization of the body is considered a real taboo within the nudist community. So, you know, people have different rules in terms of what is immodest and what is modest and so on. Um, And while it's important, bodily coverage is neither necessary nor sufficient as a metric of modesty culture. Attitudes towards women's sexuality are also key, and history suggests that societies often seek to control not only how women dress but much more specifically, their sexual behavior, you know, creating an obsession with virginity, revering virginity, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, really demonizing, stigmatizing women who might profit from their bodies in a sexual sense, such as by working as glamour models or sex workers. So, you know, The fact that bodily modesty is multifaceted and that there are no universal rules, that we all draw the line between modesty and immodesty in a different place, it makes the modesty cult elusive. But that doesn't mean that we should be fooled into thinking that we've escaped its grip. You know, any society in which the word whore is a term of insult to women, should be considered to some degree or another to be within the grips of modesty culture. And that's really because at its very heart, what the modesty cult does is divide women up into two groups, the good girls and the harlots. And it puts a wall between those two groups and sees those on the wrong side of the wall as being a threat to themselves A threat to other women (laughs) and a threat to wider society. And with that, the cult of female modesty seeks to identify, ostracize, and punish the harlots in society. And you know, as I as I try to show in the book, in a way that leaves all women at risk, wherever they are on that spectrum of modesty to immodesty, all women lose out from this cult of female modesty. Thank you for taking us through that. I think it's really
2: interesting on the one hand to see just how differently the cult can manifest in different places. But on the other hand, it does boil down to the idea of there is good and bad. And there's such strong policing potentially of the good because apparently it's so easy to become bad, one wrong item of clothing and that's it. Um, so it looks different in a lot of places, but actually it boils down to something very similar, which perhaps is part of the answer to my next question. Um, it's obviously prevalent today in a lot of different places, and you've already mentioned the idea of differences in perception across centuries. Um, But one thing that the book makes very clear is just how prevalent this is across space, time, pretty much, you know, you could take two societies and go, they're different in every
3: way. Oh, but wait, they have this. Why is
2: it so prevalent?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly, whilst we would like to think that history was one long march towards bodily and sexual freedom for women, sadly, that is not the case, as I show in the book, starting in ancient Babylon and then journeying right the way through to the modern day. Every bout of liberalism when it comes to women's bodies has been followed quite quickly by a clampdown on women's bodily freedom. And that does raise the question of why does the cult of female modesty constantly reassert itself in this way? You know, why does it repeatedly rise like a phoenix from the the ashes throughout history? And biology in the form of paternity uncertainty, the fact that the father of a child can't be known for sure Leaving men with a degree of doubt about whether their children truly are their own is. At the heart of scientific, of many scientific explanations for patriarchy. And, you know, that could similarly be argued to be at the heart of society's obsession with women's bodily modesty, Um, that it could create an evolutionary advantage for men who jealously guard what they consider to be their women, you know, keeping them from being impregnated by other men. And in addition to paternity uncertainty, other biological concerns such as unwanted pregnancy and the possibility of rape might also lead families and societies to instruct women to perhaps shield their bodies. And I think certainly, you know, if you were to ask the typical parent, you know, mother or father, why they might question the way their teenage daughter is dressed when she's heading out, say, on a Saturday night, those type of concerns, you know, concerns about rape, concerns about unwanted pregnancy might feature quite highly in their mind. So, you know, in that sense, paternity uncertainty, rape, unwanted pregnancy. You know, biology could be seen as key to understanding why so many societies have repeatedly been so obsessed with women's bodily modesty. But by itself, Biology makes it really difficult to explain what are quite big differences across countries. So why, say, modern-day Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan are much more within the grips of modesty culture than, say, Britain, Germany or New Zealand. And biology changes, you know, far too slowly if at all over time to explain the sometimes rapid swings between uh, Puritanism and liberalism. So in the book I actually go well beyond biology and I should say I also go well beyond religion. Religion might be thought of alongside biology as the other possible or obvious explanation really for modesty culture. Um, you know, again, why do parents police their daughters? Perhaps because you know religion tells them how women should behave. So I, I try actually to go well beyond biology and religion. And I identify three factors in particular that seem to have brought the return of modesty culture throughout history um, that correlate, if you like, with periods of Puritanism. And those three things are... High levels of inequality, population pressure, and warfare. So beginning briefly with inequality, the thing with high levels of inequality is it creates quite strong competition within marriage markets for the richest families. And that means that especially in societies where women lack independent financial means, where for example, they can't go out to work and build an independent life for themselves, then their bodily purity becomes a form of payment for a good marital match, you know, for a rich, for acquiring a rich husband. Virginity is perhaps seen as a guarantee that you'll be faithful to that husband and so give birth to the true heirs who the family wealth will in turn be passed on to. So where you have high levels of inequality, high levels of wealth inequality, then paternity uncertainty becomes a particular concern. And particularly those who hold the wealth, wealth really worry about whether they're daughters in law are giving birth to, you know, to to their own blood. Uh, So purity can become a form of intra-female competition, particularly in periods of high inequality where women are locked out of access to to resources. And then the second thing that has historically tended to bring revivals in modesty culture is population pressure. And with that spiraling food and energy prices, I mean, to a degree, (laughs) we're experiencing spiraling food and energy prices right now. And, you know, so in other words, it's situation in which new births are seen as bringing extra competition for food and resources, extra mouths to be fed at a time when people are already struggling to feed themselves and to survive. And so where you have intense population pressure, you've tended to see society going in a direction of shunning births That particularly births that are outside of society's control. So, for example, demonizing single mums, demonizing what it judges what society judges to be promiscuous women as well, and just more generally, really taking a dim view of women. Um, and sex. And then the third and final thing that tends to bring uh, a return of modesty culture throughout history are intense periods of warfare. Um, And there are lots of reasons why that I talk about in the book. But two of the most obvious ones are with war, sadly, comes a lot of rape. And so that tends to push families in a direction of trying to shield their female relatives. And also with intense warfare, community identity, kind of them versus us becomes as important. And women who are deemed promiscuous are seen as potentially fraternizing with the enemy. So uh, periods of high inequality, high population pressure and intense warfare tend to be those when we see a revival in Puritanism, a a return of modesty culture or modesty culture at its most extreme levels. Thank you for explaining that.
2: I think personally that section of the book might have been my favorite contribution um just because it is so easy to go oh well it's all about biology oh well it's all about religion um and of course those are factors but the story certainly is more complicated than that um so i think those factors uh are very helpful to explain it. And of course, to listeners who are interested in more detail about the examples um, in the book, I I direct you to the book itself um, that goes into kind of what this looks like in different places and different times. One thing I do want to ask about in the book is To be honest, a question I've kind of wondered about, uh, thinking about this topic for a while. And I've always sort of thought of it as kind of a dumb question. And I was really (laughs) pleased that you actually (laughs) talked about it in the book. Because I was like, yeah, I have always wondered about that, to be honest. Um, Why don't we have bodily modesty expectations for men?
3: Yeah, yeah. And here, in a sense, it's it's a debate between biology and patriarchy, you know, is it biology or is it patriarchy? And if you believe in the biological explanation for the cult of female modesty, then you could argue that paternity uncertainty um, rape, and childbearing, especially against a backdrop of population pressure, that those three biological things place women's as opposed to men's bodies and sexual behaviour more in view, and in turn producing the demonization of women's bodies, women's sexuality, and leading to the seclusion and failing of women as opposed to men but that leaves us with a question you know aren't there alternative means of ensuring paternity of limiting rape and of limiting population growth you know why haven't we throughout history seen more curfews for men more male castration if i can even you know, yeah i mean mention there, that. there are options <laughs> there are other options, yeah. Um, Or the demonization of men's bodies and, you know, men who have lots of sex. So I think, you know, with that in mind, we, you know, we really need to bring patriarchy (laughs) into the picture to acknowledge that throughout history, it's men who've held the reins of power, including through state structures and religious authority. And so it's women's bodies in particular that have been under the microscope, that have been the object of control. And in that sense, perhaps female modesty has been a tool not only for Patriarchy to guarantee paternity, to guarantee fatherhood for the patriarchs, but also um, perhaps a more general means for men to assert power over women, a way of making women's bodies the problem, the scapegoat for all kinds of man-made problems or natural disasters. I mean, basically, patriarchy fears women's bodies, except where those bodies are kept under control. Um, the, the magic, in a sense, that is a woman's ability to bring new life into the world, and the lust and the fear that their bodies can inspire in men, seems to have been too much for some men to handle in history. And rather than feel beholden to that to that power, and rather than you know celebrate women's life giving abilities, powerful men have sought to take back control, demonizing women and their bodies. There's a, a quote that I love from Ruth Mazzo-Karras' book, her wonderful book, Common Women. And she writes that historically, the arena of sexuality was the only one in which women could compete with men in importance. And it was the one in which men most feared that they would not be able to control them. <laughs> Yep, that explains it. (laughs) Unfortunately, that
2: explains it quite well. Um, So speaking of this cult of modesty being used to control women throughout space and time, um, you've obviously given us a few examples already, but I wonder if you could maybe talk a bit about the impact that this has in real life, in the real world today.
3: Yeah. So, in the same way that modesty culture has been stronger in some historical periods than others, modesty culture is also stronger in some countries than others. You know, there's a lot of variation. Now, Some like to claim that modesty culture is good for women, that when women behave more modestly in terms of their dress and their sexual behavior, that it allows women to be taken more seriously, to garner more respect. You know, the idea if we cover up more, we become more respectable. So, to test that claim in the book, what I do is to explore whether women really lead better lives, you know, more educated lives. Wealthier lives, healthier lives, happier lives in countries where modesty culture is weaker or in countries where it's stronger. And actually, what I find is that in countries with stronger modesty culture, women are not taken more seriously, they're not better respected, they tend to be less able to access education and paid work because those can bring them into contact with men. And if you prioritize a woman's bodily purity, if you worry about her maintaining her virginity, then letting her you know, go out to university, go out to school to go out to work brings risks. So we tend to find actually in countries with stronger modesty culture, women are less well educated and less able to access paid work and also that it hurts their health. And, you know, in the book, I talk about lots of different ways in which women's health is harmed. I mean, simply having to go out to see a doctor, the fact that that doctor could well be male and in the process of examining you could, you know, touch your body, then that could hurt your reputation for for bodily purity and something like a smear test. So it's interesting actually how, how much it varies in terms of the take up of smear tests. And in some places, even going for a smear test is seen as a signal of promiscuity you know there is a myth really that it's only promiscuous women that um that 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 um that get cancer in in that particular part of the body and so even going for a smear test is seen as a as a signal of immodesty and so this cult of female modesty really hampers women's education, access to work and health in lots of different and lots of worrying ways. And you know, let me give you a few examples of how modesty culture affects women in our part of the world. So here in England, just um, a month or two ago... Um, a story came to light of a school in Merseyside in the north of England where girls were being lined up in the morning to have their skirts measured, to have the length of their skirts measured, with a view that they had to pass a modesty test in order to, you know access education that day. And I'm pretty sure that in schools you know up and down, You know, the US and in Britain and in other parts of Europe, you know, girls are being excluded from school if they don't pass a modesty test, whether that is. Arriving with a skirt that's too short or arriving with too much makeup, perhaps in the morning. And then another example, strippers and sex workers. I mean, we look at how strippers and sex workers are talked about and demonized and mistreated um, throughout, you know, our, um, our societies and revenge porn, Growing, growing presence of revenge porn, and revenge porn really relies on the fact again that a woman's respectability, a woman's reputation, depends on her bodily modesty. And then also, interestingly, and perhaps some might see as ironically, the growing number of headscarf and burqa bans. And you know, I vehemently disagree with these bans. Um, and what I argue in the book is that things like headscarf bands are actually, paradoxically, perhaps a product of modesty culture. Modesty culture singles out the women who are considered the most modest, as well as those that are deemed the most immodest, precisely because modesty culture, basically, it generates a competition between women, a modesty competition, and so leads to women not wanting other women to appear more modest than them, because it risks them being bumped down the modesty hierarchy. So in the book, I talk quite a lot about the colonial context of policing women's clothing, of Western countries marching into the Middle East, insisting that women uncover their hair, As part of an effort to really maintain, you know, the Victorian buttoned up lady as being at the pinnacle of civilization, as being at the top of the modesty ranking. And so you can't possibly have women who are, you know, who are demonstrably more modest than that. So actually, modesty culture is bad for all women, you know, whether you're immodest or modest, there is... This competition that that constrains and limits your ability to be who you want to be. So I try to show that breaking modesty culture produces a world in which women are better educated, better able to access paid work, and so wealthier, um, healthier, and freer to make their own decisions about everything from clothing to sex, a world in which people Um, you know, can make their own decisions about their bodies without being unfairly judged on the basis of those decisions.
2: On the topic of essentially myth busting, um, one thing that I appreciated your book for doing is essentially taking up some of these claims and trying to see with real data um, to what extent that is true. And of course, one of them is the idea that, modesty culture um, is not just beneficial for men, which is usually not said out loud um, by the justifiers, but uh, the idea that modesty culture is about b- helping keep women safe. Now, obviously, in your previous answer, you've just explained a whole bunch of ways in which, hmm, that doesn't necessarily seem to be playing out. Is there anything else you want to tell us about this idea of our, are women safer where there are these cultures of female modesty?
3: So some certainly see modesty as offering a form of protection for women, um, that, for example, if you cover up more, Um, there's a suggestion that you'll be less subject to harassment and less prone to rape and alongside that you often find the argument that in modest women you know women like me that reveal our bodies that we're responsible for women in general being treated like sex objects that if only women like me covered up a bit more and if only women perhaps engaged in less casual sex then perhaps womankind could be would be able to garner more respect. So in the book, I I delve into those claims and I argue that it is not the case, that modesty culture doesn't make women safer it doesn't mean that they're treated more respectfully. It actually leaves them more at risk of abuse and mistreatment. And that's firstly, because when you make a woman's respect and worth dependent on her bodily modesty, it leaves all of those women that are judged to be immodest Know those seen as society's harlots as being punished and being treated like fair game. And of course, who are those doing the judged? The, doing the judging, you know, everyday people taking it up on themselves. They're out on the streets, you know, judging. They can deem any woman they like to be a harlot. So, we see that in societies, we see it perhaps most obviously in societies mistreatment of strippers and sex workers, um, in the way people sneer at and refuse to take seriously scantily clad teenagers, and we see it at its most extreme level in honor killings. At least five thousand women a year across the world are killed for reasons of honor you know because they've seen through their bodily immodesty they're seen as disrespecting themselves and their families and also you know deaths of women at the hands of enraged partners, partners who are enraged about you know where 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 she's been or what she's been wearing or or whatever. and not only does it leave Those women who are deemed immodest in a less safe situation, it makes women in general um, less safe. And obvious things here are things like the fact that where you have high levels of modesty culture, you tend to see things like virginity testing female genital cutting, female genital mutilation, and also quite a lot of street harassment. Street harassment tends to be worse rather than better in countries where modesty culture is greater. And that's really because people are more willing to see women around them, to deem them as harlots, and then once they're deemed harlots, to treat them as like rubbish, to, to deem them completely unworthy of basic respect. And then, you know, as we've talked about, by working against women's education and paid work, modesty culture leaves women more dependent on men and with that also more prone to abuse or less able to escape that abuse because they don't have that, that same level of independence to, um, to, to get away.
2: So then does that mean that as women get more access to economic opportunity that helps break the cult
3: of female modesty? So to some degree yes and let me talk a little bit here about market opportunities in particular so the ability to go out you know into the labor market let's say to find a job to earn your money and then to use that money to purchase say at the supermarket you know the food you need to feed yourself in the evening and what's key there is that markets tend to be less judgmental, tend to care less about reputation in comparison with families and communities. Now, I'm not saying that markets are perfect. Businesses can also be judgmental, and that tends to be a reflection of the society that they serve. So, for example, when my book was first published in March in the UK this year. It was initially banned by Amazon ads because they deemed it too unrespectable for their, you know, for their customer base, too unrespectable to sit alongside other feminist books on their website. Now, I'm pleased to say that ban has since been retracted, but nevertheless, there's a, a kind of market provider, Amazon ads, being judgmental about my book because they didn't like the, you know, the torso on the front cover and and banning it. But that aside businesses and shopkeepers are in general happy to deal with me despite my immodest reputation. Whereas if I look within my social circle, that's not always been the case. So there are, for example, whether it's female colleagues or family members who've taken a much more dim view of me using my body in art and protest. And um, some of those have in response, um, you know, tried to limit their dealings with me. And so if I was in a world in which I depended on my family or community, I might be in trouble if I if I go against these modesty norms. Whereas if I can instead go Go out, find an employer, you know, go to the supermarket, uh, you survive that way, then I tend to be exposed to less judgmentalism. So opportunities, market opportunities outside of your own family or community can sometimes be helpful if you don't want to be forced back into conformity with the modesty cult. Um, But while markets do tend to be less judgmental than society escaping the modesty cult takes time. And there are two potential obstacles along the way. And the first is, we might call it the chicken and the egg. Women taking advantage of economic opportunity beyond the home, such as going out to work, risk their reputation. They're out there in the world mixing with men. And where that's the case Policies, government policies, or social practices might actively dissuade their market participation. Indeed, as I as I show in the book, economic opportunities require abandonment of the modesty cult, but abandonment of the modesty cult requires economic opportunities. So there's, in a sense, a modesty trap. Um, And then the second problem is I call it the reputational asymmetry. So where women's lives go beyond their own family, where they can go out to work, support themselves independently of their family or community, then honour, bodily purity, becomes less important to that individual woman. You know, she's out there surviving without having to abide by her family or society's modesty norms. But ties being cut in one direction between that woman and perhaps her family, don't necessarily mean that ties are cut in the other direction. So that woman's family might still be dependent on her reputation for modesty, even if her own life has become less restricted by it. So for example, where a family's survival depends on social networks, as opposed to more anonymous market relations, and where participation in those social networks depends on your family's reputation, then transgressions by female members of kin can have big effects on the family. So your father's job could be at stake by your immodesty. Customers might not wish to buy from your family's market stall. Richer members of your clan or your caste might not want to lend to your family. And the sons of promising families might no longer wish to marry your sisters. So even as you, through economic opportunity, try to break away from the modesty cult, um, that still leaves consequences for your family that can then in turn lead to, for example, honor killings. And so that, you know, that that reputational asymmetry between the family versus the woman herself, you know, puts more sand in the wheels in terms of women being able to escape modesty culture. And I mean, what I argue in the book is only therefore when the survival of the wider family, not just the individual woman, but the survival of the wider family no longer depends on female honor can that kind of backlash be escaped? And that in turn means family honor being disconnected from female modesty. So through, for example, um, you know, the family getting its financing, getting its customers and so on through more anonymous market relations rather than through social connections. A very helpful
2: answer, I think, to um, what sounded like a very simple question, uh, but one that because of a lot of this elusiveness and the multifacetedness, I don't think we actually often go into and break down into the kind of constituent pieces. Um, and that's, I think, what's so important about this idea of identifying what's happening and um, naming it in a lot of ways. Um, bearing all, I suppose, if I'm going to attempt a pun. Um, And in that spirit, uh, it sounds like I'm moving from to a totally different topic, uh, but I promise I'm not. It's quite related in a lot of ways to exposing things that are very much there, but we don't always talk about. Um, and it's in fact based on something you just mentioned, the idea that what you do personally with your body uh, and how you use it well, for anything really, but for research for activism, is something that perhaps people around you are not always comfortable with. And yet I'm going to make some assumptions about the people around you that you're probably surrounded by a lot of British people um, in the United Kingdom, not really a place that thankfully has as much of a problem with honor killings and the more extreme sides of um, enforcing female bodily modesty in fact, maybe some people who would say that they're feminist or say that women should have all sorts of choices and certainly should be allowed to work and go to university, etc. It's not just a problem of other places, I guess is my point, right? There are some issues and some debates that might be a bit under the surface here. And like a lot of other things, you surface some in the book. So could you tell us a bit about those divisions and debates within feminism, Western, white, often feminism,
3: that we need to figure out? Yeah, so bearing all in a feminist sense, <laughs> exactly. not just in you know, a bodily sense. Um putting, you know, out there naked the debates within feminism. So, in the final chapter of the book, I do attempt to lift the lid on a battle that has long taken place within feminism, a battle that often <laughs> goes gets brushed under the carpet, and that's between those feminists who see modesty as a necessary tool of liberation and those like me who don't, who I like to call the naked feminists. <laughs> so the puritanical feminists versus the naked feminists. And there's long been a puritanical streak within feminism. And that was something I discovered really in the process of writing this book. The suffragettes, you know, often seen as you know, such an important contributor to, to women's rights in the modern day, the suffragettes were deeply puritanical. So if you look at, say, the um, tricolore, the the green the white the purple the flag of the suffragettes what did the white stripe signify it signified purity bodily purity and many within the suffragette movement built their respectability on on their bodily purity, on their chastity, or on behaving in terms of you know properly covering up their bodies and uh, behaving sexually, abiding by what society expected of them sexually. And interestingly, those suffragettes who didn't do that, and there's a very one from uh, one from my hometown, Manchester, Elizabeth Woolston Home Elmy, and she uh, she was actually the first full-time employee of the suffragette movement in Britain... Um, a big name. She could be found amongst the corridors of Westminster, lobbying politicians for changes in the law to you know, equalize rights between men and women in the in the latter half of the 19th century when it came to you know, property and marriage and divorce and so on. So a really big f- figure, Elizabeth Wollstone-Home Elmy. But we actually don't hear much about her or we haven't really until relatively recently. And that's because she was ostracized by by the women's movement and why was she ostracized because she got pregnant outside of marriage and you know as as a woman at the time she actively disagreed with marriage because in the Victorian period if you were a woman and you got married you lost rights to your own property to your own earnings she had good reason to object to marriage but nevertheless she fell in love she got pregnant with baby frank and, as a result of that, she was seen as bringing disgrace to the women's movement as as um, reducing the respectability of the women's movement. And some of the bigger uh, feminist names, those that we do know today, people like Fawcett, really marginalized um, Elizabeth as a result and and to quote said that she'd done a great injury to the the um, the cause of women. So we've seen really going back a long way, this puritanical streak within women, this within feminism, this ostracizing of those within the movement that are seen as a modest. Um, And we also see a puritanical streak within the art world, actually, within the feminist art world. I'm a big, big fan of feminist art, particularly feminist artists who have used their own naked bodies to try and challenge the way society thinks about women's bodies. And you know, I would say that had a stronger influence on my thinking in my teenage years and my early adulthood than reading feminist books did. That visual confrontation with women who were unashamedly using their own naked bodies and in a sense, standing up to those who would slut shame them for it. Um so I'm a big fan of feminist artists who have used their own naked bodies but what you see within the art world you see them being accused of objectifying themselves of sexualizing themselves of playing to the tune of patriarchy of basically being told by fellow feminists to cover up you know being told that they're they're not helping the women's cause that they're hindering the women's cause by revealing their bodies and I think that puritanical streak we also see In some of the sex wars that began in the 70s, continued through to the 80s, and continue through to modern-day debates about sex work, sex workers are at the tip of the iceberg of immodesty when you think about it. And as such, they've been demonized, heavily demonized throughout history. And while I'm all in favor of policies that ensure that No one is forced into into sex work. I do also believe that, should they choose, women and others should be free to monetize their bodies as well as their brains. That sex workers deserve respect rather than to be treated like pariahs, you know, pariahs who need to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so I think that those that truly believe that no woman would ever choose to monetize her body in a sexual sense, and who as a result see no problem in enacting policies that make life increasingly difficult for sex workers that do effectively aim to wipe them off the face of the earth, that feminists who think that way need to take a long, hard look at their own inner modesty cults we really have to ask ourselves as feminists, you know, what do we want our utopia to look like? And I, for one, want a world in which all women are respected and valued without having to pass a modesty test. A world that isn't one in which women are divided into two camps, the immodest and the modest. A world where... Immodest and modest women can, you know, thrive alongside one another without experiencing this division. And ultimately, I do think, if as feminists, we do object to modesty culture in the form of compulsory hijab, virginity testing, and honor killings, then we should not be slut-shaming, scantily clad celebrities or teenagers and we shouldn't be stigmatising strippers and sex workers because they affect all of those things from virginity testing and compulsory hijab to stigmatising scantily clad uh, teenagers and strippers they all amount to that same thing that that dividing wall between women and you know sadly a lot of feminist writing you know does that. it does embody that that hypocrisy, that inconsistency and ultimately that horphobia,
2: There's a lot of things in there about what um, people can do, especially sort of looking in and going, hmm, why am I saying that? Why am I thinking that? Um, and in some senses, that's easier in today's world than ever. We have lots of resources. We have lots of ways to have uh, ask people questions. Uh, we are having lots of difficult conversations. But in some ways, it's also harder because bodily modesty is experiencing a resurgence. We're one in, we seem to be in one of those kind of upswings of it. Um, and of course, this has something to do with the factors you've already walked us through that seem to impact these swings
3: throughout time. So why is it that it's happening now? yeah so the pendulum certainly swings back and forth across history and with the sexual revolution now behind us puritanism is sadly as you say making a comeback and it's almost on cue and certainly when you look at some of those historical factors you know things like rising inequality rising population pressure and so on it really is on cue um so there is a puritanical revival underway. You can see it in Afghanistan with the with the the rise once more of the Taliban with women being pulled out of schools and workplaces all in order to prevent their mixing with men and so to to protect their bodily modesty. You see it in America with the rise of virginity pledges, modesty ponchos and of course the denial of women's right to abortion driven in part by a fear that if Women have access to birth control and abortion. That America will turn into a nation of harlots and will be, you know, doomed by by the sin of harlotry. So, um, yes, you see this puritanism from Afghanistan to America. You, you you know you see it on the rise in so many parts of the world. And women's bodies are as ever seen as a threat. And There are a lot of women's bodies on show at the moment, and so there are a lot of people who are being left feeling threatened. With raunch all around us, modesty is now being presented to us as a solution to that raunch, as an antidote to the raunch. There's a feeling, I think, not just amongst religious groups and social conservatives, but also increasingly amongst feminists, that if only women stopped showing off their bodies in this raunchy way and restrained themselves when it came to their you know, premarital sexual activity, that we could all command more respect. That, in other words, if a modest woman behaved more modestly, sexism could apparently be solved. Um, and this view very much sees women's bodies as the problem rather than attitudes, rather than the way that women are treated and judged on the basis of the superficiality, really, of um, how much they wear or, you know, how many times they've had sex. Um, as I like to point out, whenever I strip off in protest, you know, my body, a woman's body really isn't a threat to anyone People really, though, do deem it as a threat. And um, by revealing my body, I think I often end up revealing a lot more about other people about their attitudes and their judgmentalism, often a very kind of ugly form of judgmentalism, you know, reveal a lot more, interestingly, about other people than I've ever revealed of myself. And I, you know, hope to show that it is those attitudes, not my body as a woman, <laughs> that is that is the threat, that is the real underlying source of sexism and uh, and patriarchy.
2: In the book, in addition to Helping us understand what has happened in the past and explaining what is happening now, um, you off- also offer us ways forward, um, three steps in particular.
3: What are they? Yeah. So, firstly, we need to look inside ourselves and to confront our own inner whorephobia, our own inner modesty cult, if you like. And, you know, that's not easy. When I was younger, I was an adherent to the modesty cult, um, and alongside, I used to be a very modest woman. Um, as a teenage girl, as a young adult, I was always kind of rushing to cover my body and trying to guard my reputation, and I was Initially shocked when I came across women such as those feminist artists who chose to, you know, chose to freely reveal their bodies in a modest ways. Um, but by seeing that, I was forced to confront my inner. Modesty cult. you know, the way that I was judging other women um, and to change the way that I judged other women, to start to respect and value women on the basis of things other than their bodily modesty, to start to basically respect and value women whose society was encouraging me to look down on. Um, But, you know, that process of really breaking away from modesty culture, it took me many years. And even once I began stripping off my clothes publicly and using my body in an artistic sense, so in 2014, for example, a nude portrait of me went on display at a prominent exhibition in London and caused some raising of eyebrows um, in the press. Now, even when I was, you know, began doing that, when I look back, I was still to some degree in the grips of modesty culture. When the press started comparing my nude portrait in this you know, pretty standard um, exhibition, the annual exhibition of the Royal Society of Portrait Artists, so, you know, very respectable exhibition, when people in the press and 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 in on social media and so on started responding to that and saying, oh, you're no better than a page three girl, you're no better than a glamour model. My initial response actually was to say, well, this is different to a glamour model. This is different to page three. And so, you know, to, in a sense, come up with a list of all the ways in which it was different, all the ways in which what I was doing by revealing my body was somehow more respectable (laughs) than what other women were doing who revealed their body. So, in a sense, I tried to distance myself. Whilst being immodest, I tried to distance myself from other modest women. So it's like that line between women, you know, where do we draw it? Do we draw it? Yeah, you know, is it okay to be a nude model for an artist but not to be a glamour model or a stripper? You know, so where, you know, I could in my mind see, you know, what I wanted that line to fall such that what I was doing was just on the side of being okay, just on the side of being respectable. And actually that's the only regret I have about The only regret now that in retrospect I have about putting my body out there in the public sphere is the fact that my initial response to the criticism was to try and distance myself from other immodest women to try and in a sense claim that I was somehow better than them. And, you know, I'm not better i am not worse none of us is you know none of us should be judged as better or worse than other women on the basis of what we do or don't show of our body you know we all deserve respect we all deserve to be seen as valuable and Uh, You know, and again, it was confronting that, you know, my reaction to the reaction to my naked body that I went even further in breaking away from modesty culture and breaking out of my own internalized modesty cult. So it's not easy confronting our own inner whore phobia, but we can do it. And I think that's the first important step to look inside ourselves. Similarly. You know, if when you're giving advice to your teenage daughter, if when you're judging your sister or your sister-in-law, you know, kind of questioning yourself on, uh, you know, on what advice you're giving on, on, on your judgment and so on. Um, I think that can make a huge difference. I think that's the first step, looking inside ourselves. And then the second step is that we need to collectively you know as women as a group tackle the whorephobia within feminism you know that puritanical streak that has long been there within feminism rather than erecting our own wall between women you know between what we consider to be the good girls and the harlots or what we might in a in a kind of modern day sense view as the brains versus the bodies rather than doing that rather than dividing women up into these camps of good and bad, we can and we should be as feminists setting a wrecking ball loose on the very idea of division. As I say, all women deserve to be seen as deserving of respect as worthy we shouldn't be singling out those amongst us that we deem as the bodies or the harlots and and seeing those as problematic and we've got a lot a lot of work to do there within within feminism on that and then thirdly finally I think what we need to do once we have removed this whorephobia from the heart of feminism is to put something else in its place. And that something else is simple and it is also extremely powerful. And that is my body, my choice, but applied in the broadest possible sense um, and to all women. Not just to the majority or to to the, the the intellectual elite. My body, my choice, needs to be applied to all women, including to those for whom you don't like the choices they're making. You know, whether they're naked protesters, whether they're glamour models, sex workers, or scantily clad, you know, daughters. <laughs> We, um, we need to put my body, my choice back at the heart of our thinking. And I think we're, we're less liable to go wrong, less liable to be judgmental if we do that. And Ultimately, if we can break the cult of female modesty, then we have the power to solve a whole host of problems that plague women's lives, not just in our own country, but across the world. You know, problems that have proved intractable (laughs) from virginity testing to honour killings and revenge porn. But doing that requires us as feminists to lead by example. It doesn't mean that we all have to strip off. And as I say, I, I really um, disagree, couldn't disagree more with things like headscarf and burqa bands, because I think ultimately, my body, my choice, every women sh- woman should be free to choose. So it doesn't mean that you have to like me strip off, but it instead means, quite simply, standing up to slut-shaming and whorephobia, whether that's in the classroom, in the office, out on a Saturday night, out on the street. Stand up to slut-shaming and whorephobia. Well, with that ringing um,
2: encouragement of what we can all do, and hopefully listeners um, will think about doing some of those things and maybe go off and do them, which would be great. Uh, That leads me only to ask my final question. Uh, The book is out in the UK. It will soon be out in the US. Are you working on anything next you'd like us to know about, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's
3: related to the topic? So it's really very early stages. And in fact, I still need to find a publisher. But my <laughs> for my next book, <laughs> what I'd really like to do is to bring to light history's most immodest women, you know, those throughout the past few, not just hundred years, but thousands of years, those that might be deemed history's most immodest women. Uh, and to tell their stories you know to highlight the treatment they faced at the hands of society and most importantly to humanize them and i think by by looking at these stories of particular women throughout history, you know, we can better relate to them. We can stop dividing ourselves up into, you know, them and us, the good girls and the harlots, and see that actually we all have so much in common that we all deserve to be treated as worthy and with respect. So that's really the next step, in a sense, in my effort to break down the walls that divide us as, as women. Well, that sounds like a very interesting project and when it does become
2: a book i'm sure you will tell us and we can have you back to tell us all about it um, but in the meantime of course listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled naked feminism breaking the cult of female modesty victoria thank you so much for sharing your time and
3: expertise with us it's such a pleasure thank you ever so much